We continue our series uh, in the Gospel of Luke. If you'd like to go ahead and turn to Luke 5, we're going to resume uh, our study of Luke's Gospel. But here at the beginning, I wonder, have you thought about the furniture in your house lately? Uh, some of you say, oh, if you only knew, I'm so sick of that, want to replace it. No, I'm not, I'm not talking about that so much as just thinking about how you probably have a favorite chair. And that may even be a point of contention with you and a spouse or another family member. Like, you love it, you're not getting rid of it, and your wife wants to upgrade it, and it's just not happening. It's your favorite chair. Maybe you have a cabinet of some kind, as I think all of us do, with that special drawer. You know what I'm talking about? Where all the things that you really don't know where else to put, but you might need them, or possibly, you know, like 10 years from now, remember that you dropped it in the drawer. It's, it's just there. Some people call it their junk, their junk drawer. Some of us feel like it's a more of a strategic drawer, uh, and it's, it's very valuable stuff, invaluable stuff even. There's probably a, a table, maybe even two, one that you would use for your meals. Uh, maybe there's a table where you gather as a family to play games or you invite guests uh, to sit down. Maybe you have a puzzle table. But I suspect there's probably at least one or two, maybe even more pieces of furniture that are loaded with stories. And they represent far more than just day-to-day function. In the bedroom previously occupied by our youngest son, there are two dressers, each with a bookshelf on top of it, and then there's also a trunk. Made from pine boards and simply constructed, those five pieces of furniture were made by one of my grandfathers uh, when I was still in high school. And they were constructed specifically for my room. They were built to go around two uh, or around one window uh, on a particular wall. And they served me through the last couple of years of high school. They served me through five years of college and uh, beyond, even into the first year of marriage with Kristen when we were setting up our, our little household in a one-bedroom apartment. Uh, and we had a, a second-hand bed and my dressers and a few other you know, odds and ends that we just uh, assembled there. And you know, they have little monetary value. But they, they hold memories of a man whose hands and whose heart, whose skill and whose love built the furniture. And he passed from this world into the glory of heaven long ago. But to this day, I cherish the memory of being in his garage, breathing the dust and, and helping him do the work. If he were here, he would say, we built that furniture together. Truth be told, he built it, and I stood around and handed him things uh, as he requested. You know, there are two pieces of furniture in this next section of Luke's gospel that I suspect for a time carried a similar kind of value for the owners. Furniture with relatively little value on the open market, but furniture that represented extraordinary moments for people whose lives at a critical moment intersected with the living God. What a marvel that is. So you follow along as I resume our reading in Luke's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 16 today. That's page 861 if you're using one of the Bibles from the seat rack in front of you. Follow along, please. This is God's Word. But he, that is Jesus, would withdraw to desolate places and pray. 
On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. And after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. For if he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, our prayer this morning, as always, is that you would open to us the words of life. And our prayer is that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts in this time together would be acceptable in your sight. You are Lord. You are our God, our shepherd, our redeemer, our king. And so we pray that you would establish your dominion in our hearts, that by the powerful Holy Spirit, you would speak, that you would bring to life in us this word, change us by it, convict of sin, comfort and encourage, strengthen 
our faltering faith. Sanctify us that we may be wholly conformed to the image of your Son. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want you to go back with me to the first portion of this story. I'm saving verse 16 in a sense for when we come to another section that describes uh, Jesus' prayer life. I, I hate to skip over that at this point, but it's okay because we'll return to the theme. Look at verse 17 on one of those days. Now, on this occasion, the the Pharisees and scribes are introduced for us, and Luke really hasn't said anything about them to this point. And notice, they're coming from all over, not just the region, but they've even made the journey from Jerusalem. And as we've been tracing the story of Christ's ministry, word is spreading rapidly because of the miraculous works that he is doing, and even because of his authoritative preaching and teaching. So we should not be surprised by these things. But note verse 18, because Luke uses the word, behold, And that just means, look at this. Pay attention to what I'm about to write here. That's the signal. And what does Luke call our attention to? Some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, immobilized, doesn't have the power uh, to, to walk or to move about his community. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. And then he describes, obviously, a scene where there's just no way for them to get in the front door, the back door, uh, side entrance, whatever, and they are undeterred, and so they go to the rooftop, and there were flat roofs on most of the houses in those days, and they begin to peel the tiles back. And I'm sure for the poor homeowner, that was somewhat alarming. If that had been me, I'd have been out on the rooftop saying, what are you people doing? But did you notice something here? At the end of verse 17, Luke notes that the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And that's what a lot of people had gathered for. They just want to see the show. But ever on his own mission and anointed with the Spirit, as we have been seeing over the last couple of weeks, fulfilling Isaiah 61, under the direction of God the Father, God the Son, is there to do more than heal a man of a physical infirmity. And so I want you to see how both his power to heal and his authority to forgive are matched here in this text. And notice with me, if you will, in verse 20, uh, as as a gateway into that particular thought, it says that Jesus saw their faith. I want to confess something here. I've read this, I don't know how many times through the years. I've always thought that it referred specifically to the little group of friends. I can't help but think that the paralytic himself has faith. He's not an unwilling participant. So perhaps it actually refers to this whole group of friends. But what is clear is that this is a story like a few others sprinkled through the Gospels where there's a kind of vicarious faith. Now, when I, some of you say vicarious, that, that's like a 50-cent word, yeah. It, it just means that you, it, in this case, have faith that brings benefit to somebody else. Now, nobody can do repenting for you. Nobody can believe on Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and, and the salvation of another person. 
but you can exercise your faith in a way that brings benefit to others. And as I said, sprinkled throughout the Gospels, there are a number of stories of vicarious faith. There's a father who petitions Jesus for the healing of his daughter in chapter 8. If you go to Mark's Gospel, you will see the Syrophoenician woman who begs Jesus to heal her demon-possessed daughter. The daughter doesn't make the request specifically. In other Gospels, there are those stories like this. Clearly, these friends have either heard of or seen the power of Jesus to heal and clearly their love for their friend and compassion for his paralyzed condition overflows in this irrepressible determination to get him to Jesus and as a very quick point of application you and I can't carry somebody in great need into the physical presence of Jesus this morning but we can transport them by our prayers and we can be people who pray continually and who even speak to friends and family and loved ones who have great needs for their encouragement and saying, I am bearing you up before the Lord in my prayer. Or even in this case, I'm letting you down into the presence of God by my prayers. We anticipate at this point another miraculous healing. But the story takes an unexpected turn. And here, look again at the text because Jesus is pressing deeper than just a physical condition that needs to be healed and remedied. He actually says to the man at this particular point, man, your sins are or literally have been forgiven. What? Nobody's talking about sins at this particular point. Oh, but Jesus is. And when he uses this term sin, he refers to those things in all of our lives. This is common to all humanity where we fail to hit the mark of God's righteousness. We neglect to do the things that we're commanded to do and we actually do the things that he has said don't do those things. We're guilty and the technical terms are sins of commission or omission, neglecting to do what you should, and commission, you do stuff you shouldn't. And Jesus suddenly brings this man's sinfulness right into the middle of the conversation, into the middle of this huge crowd. But as quickly as he speaks of this man's sin, he speaks of the forgiveness of those very sins. And this is something that just staggers us as we read the Holy Scriptures, that not only are we guilty people, which is hard to come to terms with honestly and openly, isn't it? Because we typically want to excuse or justify or just ignore, pray that nobody saw it, or, or pray that it'll just kind of go away on its own. But when we come face to face with the reality that we are sinners, there is a great and companion piece of truth that God includes in this good news, this gospel. And that is he is a God who is rich in mercy and eager to forgive and the forgiveness is not just a dismissal as if we, and we sometimes say this to each other, don't we? Uh, somebody comes and says, hey, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? And we will even sometimes say, oh, no worries. It's no big deal. It's okay. God never says, no problem, no worries. It's okay. But he does forgive. And to forgive means that he actually removes the offense itself and all of the guilt and shame and the horrible consequences that go with us, go with it. And never to bill us, so to speak, for the sin again. He cancels a real debt. 
And so Jesus is stating publicly to this paralytic, you are freely and fully pardoned from all legal and personal and even spiritual consequences of your offenses against the living God. Now, perhaps the friends had some knowledge of the man's sins. I mean, friends would, right? I mean, we know the good and the bad, and we've lived through a whole bunch of stuff together. Maybe they had some awareness uh, of the man's sins, but Jesus knows them all. Jesus sees through the physical need of the moment and sees all the way to the true condition of the man's heart. This man has no more power to forgive his own sins and to cleanse away or remove the guilt than he does to heal himself of the paralysis. But Jesus has both the power to heal, as Luke has reminded us, and he is demonstrating his authority to forgive. Now this stirs the pot. Look at verse 21 tells us that the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And you know, that's a legitimate question. Does, Does this man really have the authority to do it? Now, they're correct in asking that question. They're incorrect in just assuming that Jesus has actually blasphemed. Blaspheming uh, blaspheming at its core essence just means you, you dishonor or you slander the reputation, the character, the attributes of another person. Look at verse 22. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, and Luke uses a word here that says Jesus knew fully. He's fully aware of what they're thinking, the inner dialogue. They haven't articulated this yet, but he knows. Have you ever been in the presence of somebody who feel like just knows your thoughts? If you have, that's a little scary. Sometimes it's sweet. When Kristen and I were first dating many years ago, uh, she came to my house for a little visit one evening, and we were actually, we hadn't been dating long, but long enough where I was smitten. And we were walking from the kitchen through the dining room to the living room. I'll never forget this. I actually had my arm around her. I gave her a little squeeze, and at that moment that I gave her a little squeeze, I thought to myself, I love you. Now, I had not said that to her yet and wouldn't for a couple of more months, but like, that's where I was. She stopped cold in the middle of the dining room, turns and looks at me and says, what were you just thinking? I was terrified. <laughs> I mean, truly, like, not that I didn't want her to know that, but I'm like, it's not time yet. And I'm like, did, did some kind of electrical impulse travel from my arm through, or from my heart through my arm into her heart at that moment? And, you know, even to this day, I kind of think that was cool. But I remember just saying, oh, just, you know, how much I'm glad you're here. You know, something just really kind of (laughs) stupid and stumbling. Something was going on there. I wasn't willing to verify it, and she didn't actually have, you know, a kind of supernatural knowledge. Like, it would have been terrifying if she'd gone on to say, you were just thinking how much you love me, weren't you? (laughs) Jesus actually knows what we think. Would you want him in your head where you were on Thursday? Some of you say, no. He was. He 
He perceived their thoughts and he perceives our thoughts. And so he says to them, look again at the text, into verse 22, why do you question in your hearts? Why do you question my authority to forgive this man's sins? And then this is beautiful, verse 23, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? Well, we know the answer, don't we? I mean, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. We have no way to verify that. Because we can't crawl inside the soul of a person and see a, a spiritual cleansing that's underway. We can't enter the presence of God and, and see where, as it's described in scriptures, where the sins are blotted out. The record of our sins. Just blotted out. Wiped out. So on the one hand, it would seem easier to say to a man, your sins are forgiven, than it would to say, rise and walk. They don't actually answer, probably because the Lord doesn't even give them time to answer, but he goes on to say in verse 24 that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And Luke inserts this word of explanation. He said to the man, turns to the man and says to the one who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Indeed, extraordinary things. Yeah, I guess so. A paralyzed man walks, the Pharisees are silenced, and Jesus establishes his authority to forgive sins. Oh, it's a glorious day. It's a glorious day if you're observing this and you, like the the fisherman Peter or the leper that Jesus touched just previously or the crowd of other people who have all kinds of infirmities see this authority and power work but it's a glorious day for people who feel the agony of their sins and their souls and say will I ever find relief or escape from this I got to tell you I and I've talked with several of you about this and we're praying for some things like the, I mean, similar to the healing of a paralytic. We're praying for miraculous healings of some people in really bad situations, aren't we? I want to see it. And I want to be really careful, and I, I don't want to minimize that as, act, as if that's not a big deal. It's a huge deal that Jesus has power to heal. But I also wouldn't want to miss the wonder and awe of his authority to forgive. And you're sitting in the midst of a crowd of people today who've been forgiven all kinds of sin. And as powerfully as Jesus spoke over this paralytic, rise, walk. Jesus has spoken similar, empowering, liberating words to people who were paralyzed by sin of all kind. Crippled by it. How many people here 
were once paralyzed by guilt and shame. How many spiritual invalids are there assembled with us this morning who once knew their sin was real, who knew they could not do the things that that God might want them to do, who felt paralyzed by fear that God had run out of mercy for them, who might be short on compassion for them, yet found it. And they live life walking his path, following in his way, all to his glory. Also, others would be amazed and in awe that God could forgive a sinner like that. There are scores and scores of people like that here, but some of you still sit paralyzed by your sin. And if you were really honest, you would say the guilt and shame that hangs over your soul has crippled you. And there's no relief in sight until now. Until Jesus stood before you, maybe even in this moment, and said, I have authority to forgive your sin. Will you rise up in faith? Will you receive this forgiveness? Will you get rid of that old sick bed you've been lying on and go home? glorifying me what an invitation you say would he forgive me oh this passage demonstrates it psalm 103 that josh read earlier don't you love psalm 103 he remembers your frame he remembers we're just dust but as far as the east is from the west that's far that's how far he's removed our sins from us when we come to him and acknowledge them Now, there's a group here in this passage that's going to miss the power of forgiveness. So let's press on. And as we do, I I can't help but wonder what the man did with that bedroll. Maybe he just rolled it up and threw it away. Or maybe, like some of you, you know, he put it in a frame or, you know, a little box with a plexiglass top over it, hung it on his wall. I don't know what he did with it, but it would have been a reminder for all the days that he lived beyond this of the great power of Jesus to heal, but even more than that, the divine authority of Jesus to forgive. Luke writes in verse 27, after this, He, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. Here's another little word we need to pay attention to. He saw. It's a word that actually means he looked intently at this individual named Levi, as one author writes, looking even into this man. And he saw him, as the text says, sitting at the tax booth. Now, that's not just an incidental, this is where he was at that particular time. There's, there's more to this than just he happened to be in that geographical location at the moment. No, this would be representative of the fact that Levi was actively engaged in his sin. You say, sin? Yes. 
And it's not a sin of just being disloyal to Israel, though that's how the ordinary Jewish person would have looked at Levi, but rather that he was actually disobedient to the God who gave him life because every tax collector was known for his dishonesty, for his extortion, for his exploitation, for his robbery of the ordinary citizen. This guy is a sinner. And Jesus sees him for who he is. And you know, Jesus sees us for who we are. But notice this, Jesus calls him to repent. And you say, wait, I didn't see the word repentance in there. I know you did it. But it's loaded into the two words, follow, and then we'll come to it in just a moment, leaving. Jesus actually says to the man, active in his sin, follow me. And verse 28 says, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Leaving everything is no small thing for a tax collector. I mean, these were wealthy dudes. There's a lot he's leaving behind. I I was thinking just yesterday about the old gospel song uh, chorus. Some of you grew up singing it as I did. I have decided to follow Jesus. Do you know that one? If you don't, you should. Just go, you know, throw it into Spotify or, you know, Google it or whatever and just listen to it. A really simple chorus, but there's one line in there that says, the world behind me, the cross before me. And I think that would be a gospel song that Matthew, or Levi, as Luke first introduces him here, would have happily sung at this point because he's turning his back on his former life and he's following Jesus. He doesn't know about the cross yet, but he actually leaves everything and he rises, similar term to what the paralytic had been described with, and follows him. How staggering and astonishing is this? It's the essence of repentance to turn your back on former things and turn to Jesus for a new life and a new way. We know this from verse 32 because Jesus will reinforce this particular perspective when he says to the Pharisees and scribes, I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. So that's loaded into this concept of following Jesus and leaving everything else behind. Now notice, thirdly, that Jesus, in calling calling him to follow him, is actually inviting him into a personal relationship. There's not a lot spelled out here, but I'm just going to give you a little foretaste. As, As you continue to trace this term and this theme of people following Jesus through Luke's gospel, you find that Jesus is always calling them first into personal relationship with him. He's calling them into intimate fellowship. There's an abiding uh, component to the, the relationship that Jesus calls us to. There will be learning and serving and trusting and obeying. There will actually be opportunities to deny self and even suffer for Jesus and sacrificing comforts in life. There, there's a whole world of, uh, of life that begins when we follow Jesus But it starts as he turns his back on everything else he's held dear and he surrenders himself to this call. I wonder if you have ever surrendered yourself fully to following Jesus. Some of you like Jesus. You're intrigued by Jesus. But at this point, you still own your life from your perspective and you operate with a sense, a great sense of autonomy. I'm my own guy. Do my own thing. Kind of got it figured out. I know what I want in life. I know where I'm going, and I'm going to get there. And, and you know, when Jesus calls an individual to follow him, he doesn't crush that individuality. 
He actually will bring you into a whole new realm of, of self-discovery where you will realize you've been created and redeemed for even greater things than you ever imagined. But he will not negotiate with you and give you autonomy or lordship over your life when he says, follow me. We surrender that. We bow before him and say, you're king, you're lord. You set the direction. You set the agenda. Some of you have never made that decision. And even now, through God's word, by the sweet voice of the Holy Spirit, you're sensing that. Man, I, I need to follow Jesus. Yes, you should. And just as he called Peter, follow me, and now calls Levi, follow me, and he's gonna call a pile of other people to follow him, he does want you to follow him. Are you willing First, to leave your sin and even the autonomy of living life as you choose in order to follow Jesus. Look at verse 29. Levi made him a great feast. Made Jesus a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. Now, there's that second piece of furniture I alluded to at the outset of the message, but what I don't want you to miss is, uh, real quickly as an aside, here's evidence of Levi's repentance. The greedy, exploiting tax collector prepares a feast at his own expense, apparently, and he invites a pile of people. You see how there's already a shift underway? He's not protecting his stuff. And he's opening his table. Now, this is the, the first of actually nine different feasts or dinners mentioned in Luke's gospel. Go search them out. That's a study in and of itself. But this is described as a great feast. And here they are reclining at table, which was the common practice. They, they, they would lie on their side, typically have cushions, and it's a very low table to the ground. It's foreign to us. Like, I, I can't imagine being comfortable eating like that. But it was the, the typical tradition. It would have been a very comfortable setting for them. And there are two different perspectives on the table that I want you to see. And the first is the Pharisees. Look at verse 30. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, you know, Pharisee is a term that was almost a couple of hundred years old at that particular point. And the group initially formed almost two centuries before Jesus for the purpose of protecting the purity and practice of God's law. That's not a bad thing. In one sense, I mean, even today, we could use people who are more serious about obeying God's law and living pure lives. The problem was it degenerated into an ugly expression, and by the time of Christ, Pharisaism had come to represent an angry, burdensome, legalistic uh, religion that was completely counter to what God ever intended and certainly counter to Christ and his gospel. Daryl Bach, in his uh, commentary on Luke's gospel speaks of the Pharisees' commitment to purity, their sense of what God requires of them, and, and here's where the quotation begins on the screen, their fear of risking exposure to the world caused them, those three things caused them to shun outsiders and criticize those who try to relate in a healthy and engaging way to sinners. Table fellowship in the ancient world meant mutual acceptance, so at stake in the Pharisees and scribes' response is a worldview question. 
Should we really get close to the socially objectionable to people like tax collectors and sinners? I find it highly ironic that they are actually paralyzed by their self-righteous fear of corruption. They can't come to the table because it would ruin them. It would wreck them. And so for them, a table like this should be protected and curated. Do you know what a curator is? Somebody who works at a museum and keeps all the stuff clean and safe and protected and away from, you know, grimy, you know, fingerprints like you and I would bring to him. Well, that's what you have a sense that these Pharisees were doing with their whole way of life. They're just curating it making it impossible for ordinary, sinful people to approach. So their table would be populated with the right people, and there would be right ceremony. We know this from other places in the gospel. They go through all these you know, hand washings and, and spiritual rituals, so they weren't bringing any corruption to the table. And then the right atmosphere. All has to be right. Jesus sees the table very differently. Look at verse 31. He views the table from a totally different worldview, if you will. Uh, Verse 31, he says, those who are well, this is the answer to the Pharisees. You want to know why I'm here at this table? Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Do you know what's curious? Is that he actually, did I get ahead of myself? I think I did. Maybe not. Jesus actually acknowledges the corruption seated with him but he sees himself not as a pharisee but as a physician and this table has become his clinic with the greatest cure ever offered to humanity he knows they're sick he knows that sin has crippled them and defiled them and corrupted them That's exactly why he's there. And so then he says, verse 32, one of the greatest verses in Luke's gospel, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Oh, what a different perspective. This is not a table to be curated with our self-righteousness and our traditions. This is a table like open the clinic and bring the sick ones. Now, a mistake that popular culture makes right now is Oh, Jesus accepts everybody at his table. Uh Uh-huh, keep going. And the popular dialogue or conversation right now is, and he would make everybody comfortable with who they are and just love them for who they are. Mm. Let's look at the text again, because that's not what's going on. The table does become a hospital of spiritual care and cure, and he's not intentionally keeping anybody away from it. And you could make a case that there's really good food to nourish the body. There's generous hospitality, which would have nourished the hearts. But most importantly, there is gospel at this table, specifically a gospel that includes a call to repent. For repentance, in one sense you might say, is the first course at this table. He's not going to let them remain comfortable in the same way he didn't let Levi remain comfortable. Come follow me. Turn your back on your sin. Turn your back on your greed and your exploitation and your thievery. Levi, I'm calling you to be a different kind of person. 
And apparently Jesus was speaking directly to these dinner guests about the condition of their souls, calling them to repent, to change their minds and their hearts about the lives and the lifestyles they had chosen. And this table prepared for the large company of sinners does, in fact, scandalize the self-righteous Pharisees, but for Jesus, it is a physician's hospital with a powerful cure for incurable sin. Oh, if Jesus could call a fisherman and a tax collector to follow him, and if Jesus would touch a leper and raise a paralytic from his bed and forgive his sins, if Jesus would feast with outliers and sinners, then there's hope for you and me. What a cure for every corrupted heart we find in Jesus. Jesus looks at this table and sees opportunity for restoration for sinners and works to achieve relationship with them so they can experience the healing they need. Daryl Bach goes on to say, often the unrighteous, was that the quotation that was just up there? Yeah, there we go. Often the unrighteous are aware of their need. The unrighteous need a breath of potential acceptance and a whiff of God's grace to open up to his work. I love that last line. It's challenging personally, isn't it? Do, do non-believers who, who, whose lives intersect with yours and mine, do they begin to catch a breath of potential acceptance? Is there even a whiff of God's grace that they hear, that they see, that they experience? Oh, what a table this is. What a gospel is served. What a Christ who hosts In conclusion, I ask three questions. First, have you come to Christ's table to be cured of your sin? Are you willing today to repent and receive the forgiveness of your sins? Some of you are here, maybe even at this moment, much like the Pharisees who came to that table to criticize and condemn Jesus. And maybe, maybe actually there's, there's a critical spirit in your heart of the whole Christian thing. Some of you have even had bad experiences in the larger context of Christianity and you carry a bitterness that's morphed into just condemnation. Oh, don't miss Jesus because there's some knucklehead out there who just actually does blaspheme him by the way they abuse others or abuse their faith. Jesus has the authority to forgive all of your sins. Secondly, have you answered the call to follow him? Jesus didn't come to the world just so you and I would know about him, have exposure to a different, you know, faith practice or faith tradition. No, he came to planet earth that you might deliver this powerful healing and forgiveness and be his, be united to him in relationship. And then thirdly, have you considered your own table the power of the gospel in that setting where you can actually follow in the example of Jesus and, and you're not the great physician as he is. 
You don't have the authority to forgive anybody's sins, but you could invite your friends to the table, much like it seems Levi did, fellow tax collectors and others, is how the texts read. And, and who's, the, who's the principal guest? It's Jesus. What a strategy. Maybe some of you could open up your table and, and pray in advance and prepare for it. And I mean, we, we all fear and tremble a little bit. It's like, Jesus, if you don't show up in this conversation, I'm dead. He gets that, but he delights to show up in ways that you wouldn't even expect and by, his, by the Spirit, guide conversations to points where suddenly you're just sharing the good news of what God did to cleanse you and forgive you of all of your sins and, and you're inviting one other paralytic, spiritually speaking, to walk again. There might be more power around that table in your house to do eternally significant things than you've ever thought. So open your heart first and then open your table. Call your friends, your coworkers. Welcome them warmly. Feed them as generously as you are able, but tell them the good news. Let's pray together. Father, how we thank you. How we thank you that you have led so many of us to a place where in a moment of desperation we caught the first whiff of your grace. And you led us out of the slavery of our sin. Some it was the slavery of unrighteousness. Some it was the slavery of self-righteousness. But all of it is unrighteousness. And we breathe that rarefied air of grace and mercy. We heard your summons to be forgiven for our sins. And life has never been the same. Thank you. Thank you. Would you refresh the awe in our hearts? Would you renew that amazement that once seized us? And would you establish a fresh testimony in our souls that we would share with others much like that crowd did after seeing the paralytic healed where we would just say every day, we have seen extraordinary things in Jesus. God, would you grow in us just a zeal for Jesus, a zeal for sharing the good news, a zeal that would move us to open our table to friends, to family, to co-workers, even to strangers, and looking for an opportunity to see the great cure of this physician operate again. Would you grow in us the kind of heart that the friends had for their paralytic friend? That we, like them, would be undeterred in our prayers, in our service, in our effort to get people to Jesus. But even in praying these things, Lord, our, our desire is that this 
this work that we commit ourselves to would never be about us, but that it would be fully a work that brings you honor and glory where Jesus is revealed, the power of the Holy Spirit is present, the eternal work of salvation is accomplished. While your heads are bowed and you remain in a spirit of prayer for just another moment, I want to extend this opportunity if you say, oh, there are some things here that I need to talk to someone about. I just sense the, the, the Lord calling me to follow him right now and I'm not sure what to do with it. Friend, you, you are seated among friends and there are several of us and I include myself in this who would love to just go back to God's word, talk it through, pray with you and just show you how simple it is to follow him. And if, as heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you would say, Danny, I'd love to talk to you or somebody else, would you just lift your hand right now that I could see it? I'm gonna make a mental note of it, and after the service, we dismiss in a moment, we, we can connect. And you would say, Danny, pray for me, please. I, I really do believe God is calling me to follow. Thank you. You may say, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm ready to follow him, but I do have some questions, and let's find a time to meet. Maybe you came with a friend or a family member today, and gospel hope is new to you, but you just sense that the Lord's speaking to you. Why don't you just let your friend or family member know the questions that are in your heart or even the observations and thoughts that are rolling around in your head. Talk about it with them. But know that the Lord desires you to take a next step. At the end of the service, I'm gonna remain near the front for a little bit. Um, it would be available to anybody who would need prayer or would like to talk further. Matt loves to talk with people. Our pastor emeritus, Lloyd Larkin, is here. He delights to do it. You've heard from Josh earlier. Daniel's somewhere in the building, although he's gonna be occupied with kids' ministry, but there are, there are a number of us here, so please let us serve you. Let us, let us be a help however we can. Now, Father, take your word, seal it to our hearts. Give us great grace, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.